Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As we continue uh, in the past three weeks, we've been talking about the end of Jesus' life, and now we'll talk about the beginning. But last week we looked at the crucifixion. So that was in chapter 18, 19, where he was taken by the Romans and put on a cross, nailed there, beaten, and then left there until he died. And it's before the passage we're going to read, uh, but there's a theory that he didn't actually die, he just fainted. They put him into a cold tomb, and the cold air revived him. problem with that is that uh, it explicitly says that the Roman soldiers checked to make sure he was dead, and then they stabbed him. And if there's one thing Roman soldiers were good at, it was killing people. And so when they wanted to make sure you were dead, you were dead. So it doesn't hold up that he wasn't dead. Uh, he would have died anyway from the loss of blood and the shock and the exposure. So he was dead. He's taken off the cross and he's put into a tomb uh, by some friends, some Pharisees who had chosen to follow him. And he was uh, wrapped up in a traditional burial uh, by, by the women that followed him. And this is relevant a little bit later. When they wrapped the body, they would put spices into the, the wrapping so that it wouldn't smell for at least a little while. They put so much spices into him that they would have had to have been extremely rich, tens of thousands of dollars worth of uh, myrrh and spice wrapped up with his body. And then the, the tomb was sealed, and we come to our, that was on Friday, I believe, and then we come to Sunday. And now we have Sunday morning in chapter 20, in verse 1 it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, that would be the author of this book, John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So background, it was a borrowed tomb. It wasn't actually the tomb. Christ didn't own the tomb. The people didn't have time to put him anywhere else, so they put him in this tomb because it was last-minute preparations. So when she says they've taken him, she assumed that they'd moved him to another tomb. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you, laid, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, 
for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. There are two kinds of people here today. You either believe that Jesus died on the cross and came back alive three days later, or you don't believe it. Everybody's in one of those categories. You believe he came back alive, or you don't believe he came back alive. And some of us believe that he came back alive, but don't know what to do with it. It's true, okay. So I'm going to talk to both kinds of people today. You don't believe that it happened, or you do believe it happened, and you don't know what to do with it. And we're going to do three points out of this passage. Number one, the resurrection is verifiable history. Secondly, the resurrected king is a personal king. And thirdly, the resurrected king brings the gift of meaning. It's history, it's personal, and it's a gift of meaning. So let's look at the text. So you're here today, you don't believe this happened. Why wouldn't you believe that a man who had been killed and left in a tomb for three days came back alive? Why wouldn't you believe that? Seems normal, doesn't it? Happens all the time. Everyone knows someone that died and came back alive, right? Or knows someone who knows someone? Or perhaps you've never known anybody, and for sure in the last 2,000 years, you couldn't point to anyone that's ever come back alive. Okay, so it's not really obvious that dead people come back alive. The best we can do in our day and age is zombies, and they're not really dead. I mean, they're not really alive. Okay, so you don't believe he came back alive, or you do believe he came back alive, but you couldn't explain to anybody else why you believe that. That's a big portion of Christians. And the idea that, 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 people, that hold people back from this is it just doesn't happen. You expect me to believe that a dead person came back alive. That's ridiculous. Why should I believe that? You just choose to believe it because you have faith. And faith means you believe in stuff that's ridiculous. And you just sort of choose to believe in stuff that no one else thinks is true. That's not Christianity. So if that's you today, or if you want to explain this to someone you know, here's some things we can look at. First of all, Christianity is rational. Now, rationality has gotten a bad name among Christians because it assumes that the human mind is above all and reason can decide everything. No, reason can't be can't decide everything, but rationality means you use your brain to look at things and think about them. And Christianity is absolutely that. Look in verse 6. So this is the account that God wants us to have about this event. It says, Then Simon Peter came and following him and went to the tomb. So he looks inside this tomb where Jesus' body was, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. The linen cloths would have been what wrapped Jesus' body up. Now the word saw there is interesting. In English, it just means you look at something. But in Greek, it's different from the normal word for just looking at things. It means to consider or look intently or ponder. So what it's saying here is Peter looked into the tomb and he saw the clothes that had been wrapping Jesus up laying there. And he's looking at it thinking, what's going on here? Number one, why is the body not here? Number two, why are the clothes still here? but the body's not here. Because you know what was wrapped up with those cloths? Spices, really expensive ones. And so he's pondering, he's using his brain to look at what he sees and try to make sense of it. John does the same thing. The other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. 
Why did he believe? He put the pieces together. He weighed the evidence. So if you think Christianity means shutting your brain off and just sort of believing anything, no. That's not Christianity. Christianity is using your reason that God gave you to look at what God has presented to you and make a decision about it. It's rational. So look at the evidence. Three pieces of evidence here in this passage. These are not Christian evidences. These are facts that we can all agree on. The question is, what are you going to do with the facts? So three facts that don't you don't have to believe in Christianity to agree with these facts. Number one, Mary was the first witness. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. It says it. In the, in the story, Mary was the first witness to Jesus. Peter and John show up at the tomb. They see the empty tomb, and then they leave. Mary waits. Jesus shows up. Seems pretty normal, right? Here's the problem. Uh, people hated women back then. They were not allowed to testify in court. So if you said, I'd like to present some evidence, and here's an eyewitness, it's my wife, they would say, I'm sorry, sir, she's not allowed to testify. We don't take her word seriously. So why is Mary the first witness? That's a problem for this culture. Because for about, I don't know, 2,000 years, no one cared what women thought. Let's be honest. You don't have to be a Christian to see that. In fact, Celsus, who wrote the first sort of anti-Christian writing about 100 years after this, he says, this is what Christians believe. After death, he rose, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? And I quote, a hysterical female. Now, this time, that was about as powerful an argument as you needed. So why in the world would the biblical writers put her in the story? There must have been incredible pressure from all of their friends to say, just leave her out. We know she was there, but it's going to make us look really bad to everyone else that our first witness was a woman. So Christians must have pressured the writers not to put her in the story. It weakened the argument. It was the, mo it was the weakest link. It was the Achilles heel for a long time. So why is Mary the first witness? Why is she in the story? What's your brain tell you? She must have been there. Otherwise, there's no good reason to put her into the story because it makes the story harder to tell people. For hundreds and thousands of years, it made the story really hard to tell people. They're like, ah, why couldn't Peter have been the first witness? Why couldn't Peter and John, because two men would be admissible in Jewish law, that's, that would be sufficient evidence. Instead, you have one woman. Here's why, because it's an eyewitness account. Mary went and said, I saw Jesus, and they wrote it down, and then they told everybody. It doesn't make sense if the story's false that they would make up this story. You see what your what rationality tells you? You don't put, if you're going to make up a story about something that's happened, you make it as believable as possible. That's what lies are. Good lies are as believable as possible. What they've done is they've weakened their argument here by putting Mary in. In my opinion, and in the Bible's opinion, the rational answer is she was there. It's there because it's true. Secondly, the inconceivability of the resurrection. Now, we think and we look back and we're like, ancient people, man, they believed anything. Thunder gods and the god of the sea and magic potions and just, they believe whatever some magic person told them. Wave something around, something happens and everyone's like, oh, it was magic. 
It was, it was God did it. Spirituality. They believed anything, right? Well, some of that's true. But let's look at the historical evidence. Who was this written to? Jews and Greeks, Greco-Romans, the Roman Empire and the Jews in Palestine. It was inconceivable for a Roman or a Greek that you would die and come back into your body. Their entire religion said this, your spirit is good, your body is bad. So Plato talks about this. You need to purify your spirit and release it from your body. The flesh is bad. So, they, so a lot of them believe that, that God created the spirit and the devil created the body or something like that, and they're sort of meshed together and the body's corrupt. So Stoics, you've heard of Stoicism? Stoics would say just sort of suppress the body. Then you had other people who would say just celebrate the body because it doesn't matter. These are Greek philosophies. But to say Jesus died, his spirit was released, then it came back into his body. They would say that's dumb. Why would anyone want to do that? That's the stupidest thing I've heard. That's inconceivable that that's true. But then you say, well, it's Jews that said this. The Jews did believe in a resurrection, but they only believed that it would happen when the whole world was, re was re renewed. The Messiah would come back, everyone would be raised, and the world would be made new. To say to a Jew, one person came back alive, they would say, no, that's impossible. Th that's not our religion. That, that can't happen. Everyone's going to come back alive when God remakes the world. One person came back alive. What about sickness? Is it gone? What about death? Is it gone? What about oppression? Is it gone? What about the Roman Empire? Is it gone? No. So why did one person come back alive? So this, so this story was told to people who were conditioned their whole life for thousands of years not to believe it. So some people say, well, they hallucinate it. Hallucinations are based on your reality. They're suggested to you. They're sort of, you ever had dreams and your dreams seem to be about whatever you did that day yeah. or in your life? Hallucinations are part of the same thing. They're, they're built on the reality that you know. Jews and Greeks didn't know a reality where one person came back alive. So when, when this story came out, no one could comprehend it. It was inconceivable. It wasn't just a nice story that helped people get along in their lives. It would have been rejected by everybody. That's why Jesus says it is foolishness to the Greeks. Foolish that you would come back into your mortal body. Why would you want your body again? You want to be free as a spirit. A stumbling stone to the Jews. How does one person come back alive? Okay, so what does this mean? They believed it was true. The people who said they saw Jesus believed it was true, and there's no other reason to believe it's true unless it happened. Their religion didn't tell them to. Their culture certainly didn't. Their friends didn't tell them to. And then thirdly, the radical new religion that popped out of nowhere. Now, if you study religion, here's what doesn't ever happen. Overnight, a new religion shows up. It doesn't happen. What usually happens, or what always happens, is you have a religion, and people start arguing about it, and debates happen, and new information comes in, and the religion changes into something else. But what Christianity here is, you have the Jewish religion, and then almost overnight, you had the Christian religion. And they're not the same. Here's one of the most distinguishable differences. Because you say, well, Jewish religion, Old Testament, we believe in it. It's all the same. A Jew could not believe that you could worship a man. They said, no, that's blasphemy. And in fact, if you say that, we're going to put you on a cross and kill you. That's how you know a bunch that hated it. 
The Jewish religion could not conceive of worshiping a man. Overnight, the Bible's written, and it says what? Worship a man, the man Christ Jesus. Worship him. And suddenly everyone's saying it. Everyone's believing. Everyone's dying for it. Paul wrote about 15 years after this happened, and he gives a list of witnesses so that everyone can go check with them. 15 years is not very long, and he gives their names. Where did Christianity come from? You can't deny it's here. It had to start somewhere. This is as far back as we can trace. Why did it pop up out of nowhere in a setting that was totally foreign and anti-Christian? What happened? Christ rose. You're a Jew and you say, I can't worship a man. My father told me that. My grandfather, my rabbi taught me that. Everybody taught me that. I can't worship a man. Oh, wait, that guy was dead and now he's alive. I'm going to have to worship that guy. That's the only, that's the only thing that's going to change someone from a deeply embedded piety religion into a completely new religion that just showed up by seeing a dead guy who's now alive. And it did it. Uh, Shuzaki Indu, who, if you know the movie Silence, nominated for an Oscar, he says, if you don't accept the resurrection that Jesus came back alive, you are forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. Peter and John show up not looking for a risen Savior. You see that in the story? They run up to the tomb and they look inside. And then they stare at the clothes lid and they're like, what's happened? Does that sound like good, faithful believers? That sounds like people who don't know what, they don't know what's going on. How many times in the Bible does Peter try to stop Jesus from doing what he's supposed to do? He goes, Jesus, you're not going to die. That doesn't sound like someone who you can trust to make up a good story. They couldn't conceive of Jesus coming back alive, yet then they died for it a few years later. What happened to those people? If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you believe something else happened that's equally miraculous. I would say the number one thing that people, that gets in the way of believing this is the idea that miracles don't happen. And if you come to this story saying miracles don't happen, guess what you're going to find? A false story. Because you've already decided it was false before you read it. You've decided it was a myth before you ever opened the story. So when it says in here, a miracle happened, you said, well, I, I know miracles can't happen, so that's not true. You've established a dogmatic rule that you believe in 100% that can't be broken by anything. Not eyewitness evidence, not historical context, not 2,000 years of church history. You see how strong that dogmatic rule is that miracles don't happen? That's what we would call faith, religion even. But if you step back a minute and say miracles could happen, what, what evidence would I need to have to prove a miracle? How about 500 witnesses in a culture that hated it, among people who couldn't, who couldn't think it up if they wanted to, who then got killed for it? Pascal says, I trust witnesses who get their throats cut. That's a lot of evidence, isn't it? So much evidence that if you refuse to believe it, you'll be judged for it. You see, Christ did come back alive. And if you refuse to accept that, you'll have to answer to him. Amen. Amen. You see, if he can defeat death, 
he's going to confront you about it. What was the point of the resurrection? See, we believe that the cross is the center of, of our faith. On the cross, Jesus took on the sin of the whole world, died to provide a sacrifice for that sin. And if you believe that, if you trust that, then all your sins are gone. Christ sort of takes on the devil, takes on sin, is punished by God, and satisfies it. It is finished. But here's the problem. All of that that I just said was invisible. You saw a man die on a cross right next to two other guys who died on a cross. The whole Jesus paid for our sins, we're justified, Satan's defeated, that's all invisible, isn't it? How do you know it happened? Here's how you know it happened. What you can see is he came back alive. You see, the resurrection tells you that all the invisible stuff actually happened. The resurrection is the visible proof that Christ did something on the cross. How do you know Christ died for your sins? Because he rose again. How do you know Satan's defeated? Because he rose again. See, we're not believing in a fairy tale. We're believing in a resurrection and a man that was dead and is now alive. It's the invisible work that he says to Mary, go to my father and your father. The relationship has been restored, but how do you, you, don't, you can't see the father. How do you know the relationship's been restored? Because the person Jesus said so after he came back alive. You see the weight of the evidence? Hebrews 1 says, In these last days uh, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, which you can't see, through whom also he made the worlds, which you can't see, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, which you can't see. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That little in-between part, you can see that. You can see him dying and then being resurrected. So everything that happened before that, you can believe in. The Apostles' Creed says it this way, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Amen. You can only see one of those things. That's where he comes back alive. That proves the rest of it. And the evidence is overwhelming. That's why the resurrection is so crucial to the Christian faith. It's our connection with an invisible reality. So that's what happened. That's the historical resurrection. But look at how it deals with people. Look how it comes down to a personal level. So the king, that's Christ, has just emerged victorious from the underworld. That's where he was. When it says he descended into hell, we, one way to look at that is he descended into the grave. He went to where dead people go. And then he came back. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Whatever you view the underworld as, it's hard to get out of. It's hard to come back from the underworld. Christ does it. So whatever was holding him there, whatever holds dead people down, he beat. Amen. He defeated it. So now he's back. His first day back from being dead, from defeating everyone and everything, and what does he do? But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. And they said to her, why are you weeping? 
and she didn't know where Jesus was. And then in verse 14, and when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Wait a minute. Jesus takes on Satan, every demon in the world, the price of all of our sin, goes down to the grave, beats everybody there, comes back. And what's he doing now? He's standing by himself waiting for one person. Why is he waiting? For, who is this person? Well, it turns out she's a nobody. She's a woman who was formerly possessed by demons. If you don't believe in demons, she was at least mentally ill. Who doesn't even believe that he rose. And yet the king, who has defeated everyone and everything, is just standing there waiting for her. How long has he been waiting for her? How long has the king of glory been waiting by himself for one woman to turn around and see him? You see what Christianity is doing? It's saying God takes on everything and wins, but he'll also wait for you. Just you. That's the kind of Christ we serve. If you ever seen the, uh, the movie Superman, Man of Steel, there's a powerful image there that, that I saw it and I could never get over it. Everyone's afraid of Superman. And so he's like, okay, and if you're not familiar with Superman, sorry, but he's really strong. He says, I'll do what you want. And he turns himself into the authorities. And there's a scene where he's walking down the, the, uh, the hallway in handcuffs with guards around them. And it's the most ridiculous image you could ever imagine. As if Superman couldn't break free from a pair of handcuffs. So what was happening? He chose not to break free from them. He was making a point. Why did Jesus wait for Mary? He had better things to do. He had better things to do, like be exalted and take the reward for defeating evil. Like be glorified among the angels who would praise him. Why is he waiting? Here's why. Because he bound himself to Mary. He handcuffed himself to Mary with handcuffs that could be broken like that. But God chose not to. See, that's what a covenant is. A covenant is God saying, I'm going to bind myself to you because I want to, and I'm going to decide never to break that covenant. Amen. So when Jesus says to Mary, who are you seeking? It's a little irony, isn't it? It's Jesus seeking her. Why? Because she couldn't seek him, but God bound himself to her. Think of when Jesus, just a few, uh, few days before this story, he's with his disciples at the Last Supper. And afterwards, or before the supper, he, he takes his coat off, wraps a towel around himself like a servant, kneels down and washes their feet. Now, if there's nothing more humiliating than washing your feet, washing someone's feet, you've never done it. And at that time, there's no single recorded evidence in all of Jewish or Roman history that a, in, that a superior ever washed the inferior's feet. Not one recorded instance, except for when God did it. That's what's happening here. God comes back from the dead and waits for Mary as if she's important. As if she's worth waiting for. That's who we worship. And look what he does, look what he says to her. She turns around and not knowing it was Jesus, what does Jesus say to her? Does he say, hello, it's me? He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? If it were me, I'd been like, over here, I'm back from the dead. What are you doing? But what does Jesus do? 
he gently breaks it to her that he's back. He draws her to him in the most gentle way possible. And he just says to her, Mary. Someone said, he didn't say, hey, it's me. He said, hey, it's you. He identified her. And that's how she knew it was Jesus. You see how Jesus deals with people? You see, if you're against Jesus, he'll take you to the grave. But if you're with him, he'll stand around and wait for you. He'll call you by your name. He'll gently draw you to him. Look what this is. The Bible says that God, that Jesus descended to hell and brought back gifts for men. Here's one of the gifts. Christ cracked reality when he came back from the dead. And I mean that in the most obvious sense. One thing we can all trust, people die. What's the saying? One thing, everything's uncertain in life except for death and taxes. But now that Jesus is back from the dead, not even that certain. So what Jesus has done here by coming back from the dead is he's broken the framework of reality in a way that nothing's going to work right anymore. Reality's been cracked, and, you, and the world can't survive. So if you come back from the dead, that means death doesn't work anymore the way it's supposed to. So what does work? The Bible tells us that nothing's going to work eventually, that God's going to have to destroy this world. So, God's, so Jesus cracks reality, comes back alive, but here's what it tells us already. Our world's already cracked. Your world's cracked. Look at Mary. What is Mary doing? She's not doing anything. She doesn't know what to do. She's standing there at the grave. She's like, Jesus is dead. That was my whole purpose in life, was to follow him around. Now his body's gone. I've got, no, I've got nowhere to go. The disciples, they just went back home. She's like, I'll just sit here and wait for something. Is that your life? Are you just waiting for something? Trying to figure out wh what you're supposed to be doing? You see, there's a lot of ways that can show that to you. Are you desperate for a relationship? Are you seeking someone to share your life with to give you purpose and meaning? Are you a single woman who needs a man? That's you saying without realizing it, I need someone to make my life mean something. I need some reason to leave the garden and do something. Are you a guy who can't cut yourself away from the screen when you're alone? You know what I'm talking about. Over and over, you can't break free. Why? Because you're looking for purpose. You're looking for something to distract you from the fact that your life is terrible, that you don't know why you're here, that you can't live up to expectations. Are you an older person? Your children have disappointed you, and now you don't know what to do with it. That was the reason you were alive, was to get your kids successful, but now they're not. Now what? Are you retired and you're bored? You had work, but now you don't have work. Now what? Or maybe you're still working, and you still have the illusion that one more dollar, one more job, that'll make it okay. You just need something to give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. A reason to just live. You can't quit the sins that you got in your life. The things you hate about yourself but you can't stop. Because you can't find a good reason to stop. You've been okay with them and you want to get rid of them, but your life won't be as good. Nietzsche said it. He said, God is dead. Now, he never believed God existed. 
God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? What was holiest and mightiest of all the world is yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred game shall we invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? And you're like, I didn't kill God. You're living like he's dead. You're living like you've got to make your life mean something. As if God's not real anymore. Tolstoy said it this way. Tolstoy, famous Russian author. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide. So if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, here's what he said. It was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? What's the point? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And if you are distracting yourself from that, it'll show. If you're looking for a purpose in another person, in work, in entertainment, you're saying, this life's not worth living. Look at the gift that Jesus gives Mary. She's got no purpose, and she's just standing there weeping. He says to her, Mary, she grabs onto him and says, do not cling to me. He says, stop, I've got something for you to do. You don't need to stay here anymore. I've got purpose. Go. Go do something with your life. Now, you'll hear that a lot. Go do something with your life. That's not going to help you. He specifically tells her something. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary did it. You know why your life doesn't have any meaning? Because your life is pointless. And what you're doing doesn't matter. So Jesus is going to give you a gift. He's going to say, go talk about me. There's your purpose. You want to know why you should stop sinning when no one can see you and it doesn't seem to affect your life? Because there's a mission to accomplish. Young men, you want a reason to live? Here it is. There's a quest. Mothers, do you want a reason to not get frustrated doing the same thing every day? Older people, do you want a reason to get out of bed when no one cares that you're out of bed? Here it is. Go tell people that Jesus is alive. Now, guess what's going to happen when you say that? People aren't going to like it. They're not going to believe you. And probably in our culture, they're going to mock you. Like, oh, whatever. Yeah. No good adventure doesn't have bad guys. If you're not fighting a dragon, what's the point? If you're not going against something that has to be defeated, what's the point? So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you just a little bit of my mission to get you out of bed in the morning. Now, you don't have to do anything. Christ did it all. He said, but you can tell people about it. You want to know why you should not sin anymore? Because sometimes you think it doesn't matter to my life. It's because you're taking away from a greater mission that you could be doing. You know why you, as an older person who may not have much time left, has a reason to be here? Because you can tell one more person that death doesn't work anymore. 
that Christ is coming back. You can subvert the kingdom of Satan. You realize that's what's happening? When you tell people that Jesus is risen, they're going to look around and say, I don't see him. And you're going to tell them the evidence, and they're going to slide away from the devil, and they're going to come to Christ. We're undermining the world as we speak. This right here doesn't look much, but it's cracking the foundations of the world. Satan is crumbling because of what we're talking about right now. And it's not because we've done anything. It's because there was a man who died for us, went to the grave, and came back alive. That message right there is your reason to be alive, to tell people about it, to think about it, to dwell on it, to subvert Satan's kingdom through the message that Jesus has died and risen. That's who you are. And if you've been looking for who you are, this is it. Annie Dillard said, I had my, been my whole life a bell and never knew it until that moment I was lifted and struck. You've been searching for meaning your whole life. This is it. And if you'll turn away from everything else that you've done or are going to do, and you'll turn to this man who's standing waiting for you and say, he's the king, you'll be struck and you'll realize who you are. Jesus will call you by your name and he'll change everything. Let's pray.